0: This is Driven by Data, the podcast. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast, brought to you by Orbition Group and hosted by me, Kyle Winterbottom. Orbition Group is delighted to bring this podcast series which boasts some of the most high-profile data analytics and AI thought leaders from across the globe. Each episode details the journey to the top of our industry's most respected leadership figures while bringing unique insights drawn from first-hand experience on the industry's most trending topics. Told in order to share knowledge, experiences and ideas to inspire, innovate and give back to the global data and analytics community. So sit back, relax and enjoy this episode. Welcome to Driven by Data the podcast. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Graham McDermott who is the Chief Data Officer at TempCover. So Graham thank you very much for joining us. Good to be here. Good. Um, so where we always start Graham is by asking our guests to give themselves a, a very brief introduction because I can never do it justice. So um, give us a bit of background about yourself and I guess the the journey to this point if you
1: don't mind. I assume you went for brief because you know how old I am. So yeah. <laughs> um, so actually, I think, um, go way back, uh, right in the beginning, I, I started out in a field called actuarial science, which is basically insurance data and analytics without the computing power that you have today. So it was literally pen and paper, formulas, uh, looking numbers up, you know. Uh, and actually, it moved me into um, automating that. And so I spent a lot of my early actuarial career actually building uh, computer programs that took away the manual effort building databases that supported it. Um, And actually when I sort of um, gave up the actuarial route, I sort of was then in this sort of, um, been in this data field, I suppose, for a while and data analytics and particularly insurance. So I I joined um, various insurance companies and I was running reporting, I was head of insight, uh, head of data, uh, you know, generally getting sort of, you know, more more sort of senior um, director of data and insight at the AA uh, when I left in 2016. And I took up my first um, chief data officer role at Addison Lee in London, um, which was quite a big change of industry. You know, to, to travel, hospitality, uh, leisure, um, and then after what nearly five years of that, um, I moved back to insurance uh, mid-pandemic. Uh, probably a you know safe place to go, to be honest. You know, to stay away <laughs> from leisure activities, retail, and uh, and a few others during during that sort of bad time. So yeah, basically. Um, Thirty years in insurance and financial services data. That's that's me, really. That's uh, my brief history.
0: Nice, nice. Well, thank you very much for that. So, I guess for those of us that aren't too familiar with Temp Cover as an organisation, um, and I appreciate there's only so much an insurance organisation can do, but give us a bit of a, an overview and insight into the, the wider business, if you don't mind.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, I feel like I've gone full circle in my career. In that, um, I started working for a very small life insurance company on the south coast. And I went to a slightly bigger company, and then a slightly bigger company. Um, you know, and when you work for the AA, everyone's heard of you. When you work for Addison Lee, actually, a lot of people, even though it's a very London-based business, a lot of people have heard of you because perhaps they had a corporate account or something. And um, actually, uh, go to Temp Cover. Um, I think within its own circle, it's very well known. It's one of the leading um, short-term uh, vehicle insurers, uh, predominantly you know car and van insurance, um, and you know, been around for. Fifteen years, I think. I think it's their fifteenth birthday this year. Um, probably the original insuretech, as they would call it. You know, it's all about um, you know using technology. Um, their their sort of big thing is about um, you know you can go from from um, quote to purchase in ninety seconds. Actually, you can do it less than that if you're you know reasonably good with your fingers. And actually, if you're an existing customer and you use our app, frankly, you can buy a policy in thirty seconds. So customers on the go very quick to be able to to buy themselves one day's cover three days cover or up to 28 days cover you know that we sort of sell private equity owned uh, or management buyout was was done in 2018 um the original founder and, and ceo alan um still runs it um trading very well during the pandemic which was great and still plenty of growth opportunities uh for the business so yeah for me personally joining last year they said very exciting time to join and uh yeah, they uh, didn't play that down. It's definitely been a very exciting
0: <laughs> time to join the join the business. Good, good. Um, so before we kind of delve into the meat of the topic, which I'm I'm absolutely intrigued to get into this, Graham, because I think it's probably one of the most talked about topics. Or. Um, LinkedIn thread debates that I often find myself in the midst of. Um, sometimes willingly, sometimes not. Um, but before we get to that point, just give us a bit of insight into your role within the organisation, and I guess what what your kind of major milestones are for you in terms of what you're trying to achieve within that kind of data function within the business.
1: Yeah, so I think um, I mean one thing's important to say actually. So I am um, uh, Temp Covers' first Chief Data Officer. Um, I would say it's the first time they've they've um, decided to build a data function, a data team. I think previously there was bits done in finance, bits done in IT, um, and I think it served them well. And actually, they've said to me subsequently, they said, "Oh, do you know what? We really wish we'd recruited someone like you probably a year or two years ago, because actually we can see the difference of having someone who leads our data function, who cares about our data, who's passionate about our data." Um, I think. Um, in particular, they wanted someone, and we'll talk about this, you know, later on. About they wanted a hands-on data leader, or we'll define that because someone might say a data leader isn't hands-on. Well, okay, there's a few of us. I think who are still hands-on. Um, I report to Alan, the CEO. Um, I sit on the board of directors, um, and I'm just writing my board paper for this month, and I get to write about data analytics in the board paper. You know, yeah, how much more fun can you have, Frank? Because a lot of people would say they don't think their data ever makes it to the boardroom. Well. You know, ours certainly
0: does. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's a ton of stuff in there that I'm I'm really kind of itching to to unpack because I think we're 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 probably you know if we were to pick a sweet spot, Graham, this is probably mine. So I'm quite excitable as you as you can probably see. But I guess to to start with, then um, what's your take on the whole? landscape as it is at the moment because you know I think we first started chatting right probably over some LinkedIn threads last year that you were usually probably started by me about you know highlighting various job adverts that you see out there around you know senior level leadership roles, directorship roles, CDO roles, all of that type of stuff that were then asking for things like a PhD in data science and, you know, you need to be hands-on and build machine learning models and all of that type of stuff. So I I know where the side of the coin that I sit on that with that from an opinion standpoint, but um, I'm very, very eager to get your take.
1: Yeah. I think, I think you used to call them rants, but um, I I wouldn't, (laughs) I don't think call them rants. I think it's a bit unfair. I think, um, I think actually, I think, you know, I'd say my head probably ached quite often from nodding uh, in agreement with you. Um, and then it probably took me a little while to go, do you know what, I'll just uh, throw in my two penneth onto, onto LinkedIn, which for those who know me will say it doesn't normally take much for Graham to throw his two penneth into uh, <laughs> LinkedIn. And I suppose for me, where where do I sit on it? So, um, you know, as I said in my background, I come from a data analytics um, background. I code, um, I lead from the front. And so I'm still, you know, hands on. No, I'm not going to sit there and write a machine learning algorithm, but um, I can get heavily involved in some of the reporting the analytics um our choice of cloud partner um you know best way to make sure that our engineering stuff doesn't fall over at night all that sort of stuff that that say perhaps you know uh, more junior or inexperienced people that you might have particularly when you have a small team um haven't got that breadth of experience and they need that experience from someone um who's been there and done it and can can really sort of help them to to, to build rather than say yeah go and build us the, the best you know bit of engineering for example um, I think also, um, when, um, when I went to, to move on last year, so probably, um, around Easter time last year, uh, there was a, a, tr- a, sale transaction at Addison Lee. Um, it was always the intention to, to move on, um, probably at that time. And, um, I was looking around the market and actually what I saw was more, um, what I would call, um, agent of change type senior data roles. And, um, and I thought, well, actually, to be honest, I'm, probably not that that well suited to some of these big roles Um, and actually they're they're not really what I want to do. Um, I think what's interesting over the last 12 months and is it purely pandemic related is it other related to other things is I think we've seen that change and I think increasingly why I think you know we commented on it recently is companies uh, are going out and looking for you know soup to nuts somebody can do everything and we will discuss later whether that's actually feasible or not but you know um somebody that can be the, the data leader and can be hands-on you know involved with their team in terms of what they're building so um yeah I think um I think my final point as an example on this was um just before I left um Addis Lee so just to put in context you know they were um severely hit by the pandemic you know they are a, tr- a travel related business predominantly in London uh you know lockdown you know dramatically hit their business and in the I think it was the first or second weekend, um, of lockdown, and um, they were still, um, you know, we were still supplying a, a service. You know, we had drivers who wanted to work. We just didn't have, have many customers. And on a um, on a Saturday morning, we had a an email from our regulator saying, "You need to justify by nine a.m. Monday morning why you should continue to operate and why you shouldn't shut down for for the for the lockdown period." Which obviously is quite a big thing. Mm. And to do that, you know. I worked with the COO to say this is how I think I'm going to do it with some data to go and prove why um, we're providing an essential service to to um, people in London. And actually, I went away over the weekend, got a load of data together, proved that how how the the, the customer dynamic had changed in that very brief um, period. I think it was probably a couple of weeks after, and we got to a point by Sunday night where we proved that actually we were providing you know an essential service to. Um, you know, doctors, NHS workers, um, you know, sort of emergency services workers to get to work or to get around London, and therefore, you know, we should should remain open. And the regulator said, "That's great, yeah, totally agree." Equally, they said to us, "We've asked the other operators in London, some of the big operators, and they couldn't turn it around by Monday morning." Um, and I suppose because I could, and I'm involved, I didn't. It's not something I pass off to someone in my team and say, "By the way, Saturday, you need to try and do this," and I don't know how you're going to do it rather than saying, do you know what i've got an idea how we're going to do it and use some internal data some external data to actually prove the point and and you know we carried on operating mm. that's yeah. why i think you need to be hands on yeah yeah so i think
0: we're kind of kind of stepping on the the question here though is from a you know the, again it comes often a lot of things in our industry come back to the terminology right and is the terminology that we're using right um i guess there's probably a difference in my opinion anyway, between being hands-on and leading from the front, which is very much what you, I think you would kind of describing there. And I think you're absolutely spot on in that most data and analytics leadership roles as of today um, typically are that kind of change agent, right? they someone that yeah. needs to go in, it's strategic, it's leadership, it's transformational, it's winning hearts and minds, it's influencing boards and CEOs and executives to... To think and act and operate in a different way to get the most out of data, um, I don't think that necessarily means that these people shouldn't be leading from the front. But I think a lot of organisations do want someone who you know is still very active, you know, being able to code in Python and hands-on experience with cloud, the cloud platforms and things like that. So I think that's that's an interesting concept there. Not to say that you know what you're describing isn't you being hands-on, but I also think is there's an element of leading from the, the, the front as well. So for you, is it possible to get someone who can do both? And I'm pretty sure I know what you're going to say because, you know, you you probably are that person. So, <laughs>
1: so <yeah. laughs> No, but I think um, it's a compromise, isn't it? I mean, I think, um, you know, I, I'm not going to be that... Uh, you know, I'm not going to do that massive data transformation, you know, a Peter Jackson-esque role that he turns up and he mobilizes, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, of data people in a you know, multi-thousand uh, company. That's, that's, not, that's not what floats my boat. Um, and I suppose the, the example, I suppose, um, that I look at is, you know, when football teams have player managers, why do they do that? You know, don't you have a manager or a player? Why do you have both? And actually, we, I think we all know why that happens, which is like it's, it's the player not quite, quite giving up playing, but wants to then learn how to be a manager. And so it's a halfway house. But I think it's an, it is a niche group. And so I'd say perhaps there's a niche group like me who are, um, who are leaders, who have led big teams and big transformations and can do that in a smaller scale and therefore need to be hands on. You know, Tempco were very clear at interview. It was the most asked question at interview from, you know, I was interviewed by all of the directors and the chairman. And they kept asking about being, you know, being involved, being in detail, actually doing stuff. I mean, they didn't know what it was because they'd never had someone. So they didn't actually know what that meant. They just meant, you know, you're gonna be hands-on. And that means the CTO runs a bit writes a bit of code. The uh, CMO writes marketing copies. You know what I mean? It's sort of it's that level of hands-on, I suppose. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I I sort of think um, you know, maybe it comes back to that because you've come from that grassroots of data analytics. can never quite let go i know technology moves on and there's always a danger that your technology skills age and maybe it's one of the things because i've I've tried to keep my technology skills up to date that actually i can still be hands-on when there's plenty of other um, data leaders who either have never um you know been near um you know a segmentation or an algorithm or anything like that or you know a multi-billion row data set but as you said can do the sell to the stakeholders and in fact they're probably better at selling it to the stakeholders than me in certain circumstances for example
0: Mm. yeah yeah i I think you're right there i think you know the skill set and the desire to want to still remain hands-on and in the weeds and in the detail as you said obviously plays a, a huge part because i think for the most part, once you get to a certain level, a lot of these people don't necessarily want to get into that. They want to hire people who can do that for them. They still yeah. want to be at touching distance, but, you know, they don't want to be getting involved writing code and doing reports and all of that type of stuff. You know, they want to be trying to do the commercial facing stuff, which, you know, is probably more strategic in in nature. Um, yeah. One thing. I'm keen to get your thoughts on because, again, in a lot of the LinkedIn debates that that kind of we get involved in with this type of stuff, I've I've heard people who you know part part of the the teams, the the doers, the practitioners, for want of a better word, um, you know, within these teams, the analysts, the data scientists, the engineers, etc. Um, a lot of the feedback I've had from those type of people has been that if their data leader isn't hands on to a certain extent. Um, or doesn't have an appreciation or an understanding of the technicalities behind what they're trying to do they very quickly lose kind of credibility and respect of that team um, which I guess kind of makes sense to it to a certain degree but again when you flip it that on its head and it's often very much around trying to transform the way a business acts and operates and that whole cultural piece um, do, do you think there's kind of legs in that?
1: I, I totally agree I think um, sort I would say I've heard it a lot um, from uh, people in my team, people outside my team over the years. Um, I think my team leads would say to me, uh, and have said to me, um, you know, we respect you because uh, you know, uh, you support us, um, you defend us, um, but also you challenge us. So there's a, the double edge to it, which is because you're because you've been there and you're sometimes still down there with them. Um, actually, you know, they they would say we can't pull the wool over your eyes because you either know the system so well, you know the data so well, you know the <laughs> stakeholders so well. Um, but actually they like that, so because for them, a lot of these people want a challenge. Um, they perhaps feel they don't get the challenge when they work for someone that's perhaps less technical and and or has, has never been involved in what they're doing. And I suppose for my, myself, I sort of think back to my you know my early career, I probably spent my first 10 years working for people who were more experienced and more technical than me um, in the subject which is great because you get to learn from them you then get to a flip point where you become the leader and actually you're more likely to report into someone who has never ever you know And there was, there was a time in the AA where um, I think it was a, a bad year where we there was a transaction and this happened and, and reorganizations and we had about five or six um, managers in that time not a single one of them came from anywhere near a data analytics um, perspective you know, one was a you know strategic person, um, one was um, marketing, um, one was product. None of you know the, the the best times were when we were reporting into a financial function because there's a good chance you'll find someone in the financial function that sort of, you know gets um, you know data and analysis, I suppose. Um yeah. I suppose the thing is is as your as your teams get bigger, you know, and I experienced this when I was at the AA and my you know the team then when I left was like 35 plus people, is actually your team leads become also um, less technical and less hands-on. So actually it sort of forces you a bit to be that way as well, because over time you have to, because because it just, so I think it's a function of, of scale really. So I think the ones that that say it is, yeah, if you're in a, um, I, I often get um, candidates applying for a job, perhaps they come from a smallish company and there's like two or three data analysts and IT run the, the, the engineering bit, They feel very lonesome and they report to someone who, in their words, doesn't understand how I do what I do. Now, they do actually are very good at the stakeholder management and presenting, helping them present the material. But the gap from them to the technical doers is so big that these people leave and want to join organisations where they're going to be working in a a much more um, um, technical, uh, knowledgeable management structure, I suppose.
0: Mm. Yeah, I mean it's a really interesting and fascinating concepts, but I think you know you touched upon the point there. It's kind of I guess people become a product of their environment, right? Yeah. So you know if 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 Temp Cover had a data capability that you walked into that was already thirty people, well, the reality is is that a lot of your time is going to be spent on. The management of that team, yeah. and then doing the strategic leadership stuff. Whereas, yeah. if you walk into an environment where you're building it from scratch and there's nothing there, then you know, um, just by default, you're going to have to, to to roll up the sleeves and start doing something right. Um, which, yeah. which makes makes complete complete sense, I guess. Given the current climate of the landscape, and it sounds like you've been fortunate to a certain degree, Graham, in a business that kind of gets it or knew what they wanted and needed. Um, and I think that's where often this, you know, these conversations stem from is that I think a lot of organizations, unfortunately, they're going on this journey and they're not too sure the type of person they need. You know, they, they think they want someone a bit hands-on, but they also want someone really strategic and trying to find those people. As you mentioned, there's probably a small group who, you know, a are capable, but b are still willing. I think that's the an important part of, of of that. So, with the whole landscape being now more around winning hearts and minds and trying to transform cultures within businesses around data, do you think for you know the the broader data analytics community and landscape that? most data analytics leaders are probably more kind of leaning towards that strategic leadership transformational piece, as opposed to the, the technical piece.
1: I think you're right. And I think it's something I, I probably noticed um, a few years ago. And I think, um, I think actually it was, it was more a function of um, the lack of people coming through probably from the technical um, background um, who could do that role that was demanded by, by companies so if you compare it to um, more traditional functions like HR, finance and marketing, a lot of them have maybe, say, professional qualification and you go through from a you know, junior to a senior to a uh, you know, more senior, et cetera, and you sort of earn your stripes and you're doing your qualifications. There sort of isn't one for data. So what tends to happen is you start in a technical data role, whether it's an engineering or it's analytics or it's reporting, and you grow up through it and you get to a point where you have to be manager and leader and less hands-on doing but actually you're not always the, you're not always best equipped and actually it's, it isn't something that comes natural to those type of people who are really good analysts because sometimes the people who leave analytics behind very early in their career I, I see them often you see their CV two years as, a, as an analyst and then they were manager and then they were strategic then they were whatever so they had a very very short period of hands-on and actually yeah. And, and so I think what happened is it, it was about needing people to fill the gap to do that more strategic transformation piece that companies were demanding. Mm-hmm. And so it's not a surprise. And I think what those people did who went into those roles is they then had to recruit, you know, their sort of lieutenants and colonels, shall we say, in their team who would be, you know, right, the guy who's going to run, be head of, uh, uh, you know, head of engineering is going to be like this and my uh, head of enablement is going to be like that. And, the, you know, and they, they picked their roles there that people group people could be definitely you know sort of probably 50 60 percent hands-on should we say and you know 40 management and leadership which allowed therefore the overall leader which often was director of data or cdo or cdao etc to be much more that transformational um, person and the, the winning the hearts and minds i suppose my point is that that's fine in larger larger operations larger companies yeah. when you get to a I'll call it a normal size company that <laughs> might be the data functions 6 10 15 you no know, and you know Addison Lee when I went there we were the data function was 16 and that covered at the time that covered just engineering and reporting so no analytics so actually over time I reduced the amount of people that were used to do reporting because we automated it and I brought in more analytics people to add more value with the data. And actually, over time, we reduced the headcount from sixteen to twelve. And not least by that, because we had lots of contractors, so we moved from a contractor model to a to a more permanent model. Because these weren't contractors; they weren't short-term resources. You needed people to be be in there forevermore. Actually, you can run that with a slightly cheaper and you know a smaller headcount ultimately, and um, with a with a permanent workforce. In 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 my view.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking out loud here, but I think a lot of this problem, if we want to call it that, kind of stems from the fact that, I guess, of perception of job titles, right? Yeah. You know, I think when you think about a chief data officer, you kind of think, you know, and there's that whole debate in the industry now, right, around, well, you know, is a chief data officer really a chief data officer unless they report to the CEO, you know, and if they're reporting to a CTO or a CFO, does that make them any less of a chief data officer? You know, and that whole perception piece around that and and same at the director level or VP or whatever kind of structure an organization uses, I think it's it's almost a foregone conclusion that people now expect in these roles to always be strategic and transformational in nature. But as you've quite rightly said, it's it's really based on the business need at that time. But I think the, the disparity between the two is often that, especially businesses that are about to go on the start of that journey, they don't understand the nuances and they're also not too sure exactly what it, what it is, the need, and what they're looking for, um, which, is, which is really kind of fascinating, I, I, I guess. Um, so outside of the hands-on piece and then the strategic kind of leadership um, and transformational areas of you know where this whole data analytics leadership spectrum kind of um, starts and ends what what other aspects of of the role should data analytics leaders be focusing on in your opinion
1: you know, i mean it's i sometimes think so many so many <laughs> you can you can have a go at i mean i think um um i um i think a lot of it will depend on the the sort of data maturity of the organization so like you said talked about earlier when you may come into a, an existing data function that's been set up maybe they they um appointed a cdo and it was their their first generation cdo as we call it um and actually they're now on their second or third and it's a different you know it's an evolution it's a different type of cdo or senior or senior data leader that they need to, to run it i suppose um and i look at um the 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 journey you go through with that data team and with the organization that you join. So if you take an example where someone maybe doesn't have a data function or has it, you know, disparate places, the first thing often you focus on is just getting the basics right getting things in place. And I look at then, okay, where did I end up with Addison Lee after you know a um, couple of years, after a couple of years of getting the basics right and getting the people right and you know getting database right, all those things, and getting, you know, reporting that reconciled, you know, between different reports from the same team and stuff, which, you know, but bear in mind. Um, but actually then start to focus on things like um, data literacy and improving the data literacy of not just your data team, but also the stakeholders that you interface into. Um, the big one was um, around asking better questions. Um, and it um, might sound really silly. It's like, what well, questions are questions? like, no, it's not. And we used to have a, we used to have a wall uh, in our fancy offices in London, and uh, you could write on the wall. And uh, I used to write this like um, profound data statement from time to time. And it was one of the ones that stayed up there and it was still on there when we went into the pandemic. And it was all about um, you know, how to ask us um, a better question. And it was like saying, look, a bad question is, can you give me a, um, an extract of X by Y? That's a bad question. What was a better question was, I'm trying to forecast this and I want to use that do you have anything that could do that? And my time scale is I need to do it for Friday. That was a that was a better question. And it's funny, when we put it up on the wall and we showed this good question, bad question, um, because it was very open plan, people would walk past and look at it and they'd stop and they'd read it and they'd laugh and giggle a bit sometimes, you know. Um but actually I think over time, just because it was there, people would come around and genuinely <laughs> ask a better question. It it works, yeah. I'm sorry, but you know, it's a bit nudge theory, you just keep nudging them in the right direction. You know, these these things work. So mm. um yeah, my, my start point is um, I call it um, um, vision, people, process, technology. That's my sort of you know four pillars. Um, I think it's others talk about six pillars, but that's my my sort of um, four. Get the basics right allows you to move on. I think, um, and then it's just about um, where you want to take it. Where where do your focus need to be in those in those sort of different areas? I suppose.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And I guess intriguing because I think the the literacy piece is you know it's becoming so. Popular and spoken about now, and almost like you know the cornerstone for allowing organizations to succeed with data and analytics. I, I guess, um, and almost to tie it back to the hands-on piece of a data leader. You know, a lot of data leaders now are taking that responsibility from a um, you know data literacy piece within an organization. That's kind of their gig. So keen to hear from you. Who who's responsible in your eyes for upskilling? business users, stakeholders, executives through that kind of data literacy journey?
1: You know, I'm going to say everyone is responsible. Um, But actually, I think you're right. The data leader is probably more accountable for it and probably needs to be the driving force. But at the same time, they need to have, um, you know, that real top-down support from the exec. Because otherwise, you know, I've I've probably said it before, um, you know, it is like pushing snow uphill in a heat wave, you know, it's just a thankless task. It's not going to happen and you're just going to get to the top and run out of snow. But I, you know, it's everyone's responsibility because it's not just about the data team pushing out literacy and then trying try and improve literacy. You, you sort of need, it's a bit of, you know, a bit of, um, give and take from, from both sides. And I suppose that the contrary to that is not just you improving the data literacy of your stakeholders and, and the rest of the company, but also you improving, um, The understanding of your data team of the other areas so they're having appreciation of how it works or how marketing works or how hr works because actually um you know it's everyone says you know with um this sort of old style of working was very siloed and teams sat in different offices in different parts of the country Um, now we all sit at home in different parts of the country and and try and work over teams or zoom etc but um you know the same problems exist you need people to um talk to and collaborate with other areas when they're working on a project but actually even when they're not working on a project you want them to interface because you need them to pick up conversations nuances etc which are useful um, and it's a two-way street they can be telling them something you know I, I had somebody that um, years ago um, was asked to help out in HR and he sort of came to me he was like not sure about asking me and I they they've got this really manual process and it's been doing sickness recording and they spend like two days a month and they said can I help them out by writing some SaaS to Automate? And I went, yeah, absolutely, fill your boots. Because it's the right thing for the company for you to go and help somebody because you can spend about a week building something that's going to save somebody two days a month. Crikey. And it wasn't an IT job, you know, per se. It was actually something that was better aligned to a data analytics function because the data and the uh, KPIs and the metrics and everything um, needed, you know, a bit of, um, discovery rather than here's a set requirements go go and build it
0: yeah and, and that and that makes sense and i guess it was just just fascinating that piece because i think as i mentioned you know that's the that that's part of the the role now that a lot of this kind of you know strategic data leader the whole transformational piece that's a, a real kind of integral part of, of that role seemingly um, i'm going to come on to kind of asking you really how you sp- kind of split your time because i think that's going to be quite intriguing for the audience but <laughs> staying, staying on the staying on to the, uh, the the literacy piece for for a second um have you got any kind of hints and tips kind of methods how data analytics leaders can you know adopt um and and drive kind of literacy
1: first off i um, my uh, strap line is it's a journey not a destination so um it it isn't you know i think you've got to make inroads into it but then it's about it's a constant drip feed um, and also replenishment because, um, you know, new people are joining teams that you used to interact with who don't know how to interact with your team or how to use the, the statistics or the self-service, et cetera. So it's a constant um, um, sort of um, journey you're on rather than you reach destination, done, we've done data literacy, all over. Um, <laughs> I think secondly, like I, I mentioned before, um, you know, you need a top-down support. And I mean by that like proper actionable lead from the front support, not just some words in an email that says we're going to be more data literate and and oh yeah, and Graham's this person that's going to going to drive it all forward for us. Um, if I take an example like you know Addison Lee again, you know I worked with um, the CEO, I previously worked with him, um, and he was he was the um, the top user of all of our self service dashboards that we built out in Power BI. Previously, mm-hmm. he'd have to consume them in. Business objects PDFs. Um, you know, he'd ask lots of questions when he read them on the train in the morning, and we'd then have to scurry around and write bespoke code or things to try and answer his questions. And, and similarly from other other exec. Now he'd sit on the train on his iPad and he'd answer his own questions with the self-service, and he became a big pr- supporter of using that type of mechanism. Um, and probably because he was an ex CFO, he was already pretty data literate and could understand you know what he was what he was doing. Mm. Um, I think thirdly, it's not just about the data leader. Um, it's getting your whole data analytics team to help people to, to access data, to use it, to understand it. Um, and again, some of that comes back to your recruiting strategy, who you recruit, the types of people. You know, um, I don't just sit there and go for the traditional list of they must have the following technology skill sets. <laughs> In fact, you know, someone said to me years ago and I sort of at the time I didn't quite agree and, and, and then I thought about it afterwards and we started... You know, um, going off piece of just saying no, they must have these five skills, technical skills. Um, we would say, well, it doesn't matter if they've not programmed in SaaS. If they programmed in something else, then we can convert them. And actually, it was more about what they did with it, and, you know, depending on their role level, but how they could you know, communicate. Could they talk someone through a presentation? Um, and actually, what I think it led to is, was having a, um, I call it a more balanced team, and you can determine what balance means. But you know, it was a more diverse team in terms of um, you know everything from age, nationality, um, gender, et cetera. Um, you know, just going to just uh, finish off this, you know, the so one of the things we used to do at the AA was um, my uh, leads uh, for each of the sort of um, analytical product areas, every year or twice a year, they would run like mini workshops tailored to the, uh, I say workshops, often they were they lunch and learn, bring you lunch, hour, hour and a half, um, and we teach them how to use some of the self-service tools. We teach them how to interpret a profile, how to use, how to understand basic stats. Um, we'd also apply them with donuts and sweets, which was, you know, um, we have we've sort of realized that we worked out what the currency was and it was sweets, definitely sweets and donuts and everyone would turn up. And that definitely helped the, the and, and it did definitely improve the understanding because people would come to us and I think we were seen as more friendly and open rather than, the geeky people in the corner that you know are going to tell they're going to sort of you know um tut at you when you turn up and say i've tried to use your excel and i can't work out what to do type thing
0: Mm. (laughs) yeah interesting um in regards to the piece you were talking about before around better questions that's an area that's fascinating to me because i think you're right. A lot of what I hear of and conversations that I'm involved with, uh, you know, across businesses and data analytics teams, is very much around, you know, um, executives and business users. Exactly what you said before, right? Can I get a report that tells me this? And it's kind of getting them to think differently about the types of questions they're asking, which is t- is tied, I guess, to to the literacy piece um, in 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 some ways. And I know you gave a, a brief example, but did did you put kind of core emphasis on this better questioning or was it just kind of something that you know was an, an undercurrent of you know the the environment that you created
1: yeah i think um i definitely say it's an undercurrent um and i would um and again you know this whole thing about my my lead from the front so i would sort of demonstrate it to so my team when they'd come to me oh, what often happened it, it might get escalated to me to um you know why is so and so refused to do this request for me Um, And I'd look at their request and then I'd look at our response and it was a bit like, you know, computer says no. And I'd sort of of interject and go, well, hang on, we do have this data here and you can make a, you know, it's correlated to that and we can use this. And, you know, was was some of that experience, was that some of my, you know, analytical background that says, you know, 80% solution sometimes will be good enough. um, You know, if you understand more about the context and some of it was about, just understanding more about the context. So when the person escalates, it's terrible that so-and-so won't do this for me, I would say, what is it you're actually trying to do? Oh, I'm trying to do this. Okay, so um, you're doing this. And you've done a bit of an exchange, and you go, right, actually, what I think we can do is you give me this. Oh, that's great. Yeah, if you just do that by by tomorrow, that's fine. Right, that's a five-minute job. And so I th- instead of taking the, when you're, when you're given a solution, um, a team that, that like delivering to solutions, which is what data analytics and, and also IT functions are good at. You you deliver to the solution, and then you get annoyed when they iterate the solution, and um, it's not quite the solution they wanted. And more times at ten, people you know, I would say, um, you know, bang themselves on the wall and say, "Oh God, I, re- I really wished I'd not fallen into the first question or solution, and gone back and asked a few questions." And asked and got a better question rather than, than, a, than a solution mm. and I think um, back to this you know it's, it's just an undercurrent um, I sort of rely more on, um, on I call it nudge theory so you just nudge people in your team you nudge the company along um, I remember one of my analysts um, who was um, done psych, uh, psychology and stats saying to me, Graham do you know you're doing nudge?" I went <laughs> um, yes and no. <laughs> So <laughs> it's not a, you know yeah yes i sort of yeah i'm i'm nudging the direction etc because it's the way to get get things moving and get things done but um, no i haven't sat there and read the book on nudge theory and yeah you know, i'm not some sort of devious person in, in, in that respect i suppose i think also the questions thing's really interesting i um i um i didn't really think about it in depth until a few years ago and um i met a guy called graham hogg uh, he was writing a book at the time called Seeing Around Corners and How to lot Potential with Big Data. I'm not sure about the rest of that, that book title. But anyway, if you um, go and read the rest of his, his book, fascinating book, uh, fascinating bloke, um, ex-military intelligence, and he tells you stories. Um, you know, their, their use of, of data analytics is life and death. I'm sorry, but in insurance and taxi cabs, no one no one lived and died on my data analysis being bad but his examples are life and death and actually he gives a really good um example where uh, and it's and it's really sad that you know um because there was there was bad questions and 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 data information wasn't passed on from from one sort of country to another country within the the afghanistan for example um that you know people died and it makes you think about actually that the the that sharing and collaboration of uh, Data and and people coming to you and asking better questions. You can't just say to people, "Ask a better question." <laughs> it comes back to this nudge thing about you give them examples of by asking how how are you going to use it? Oh, will you want that? Okay, you know. And often, I'd say nine times out of ten, the solution to the actual question they've got is a lot less onerous than what you initially were presented with. Yeah. What,
0: did you find that the the whole questioning improved in in your eyes as you know in terms of asking better questions as literacy improved was there a correlation between the two or were they standalone somewhat
1: yeah i think so i think um uh certainly my experience at addison lee was that um the company grew and they brought in people from outside of the industry traditionally it was a, a a company that um Uh, a lot of people had been in that industry for a long time and moved from other um, suppliers and therefore they'd only ever been in that industry and one of the things you get when you when you um, uh, have other people from outside your industry you know we were insurance we had lots of people in insurance and then you get people who come from retail and other areas who who bring along and challenge and question you know um, how you do the way it's things that you do and I think um, that helped us there um, because people were asking lots of questions and maybe the the only downside was the questions were a bit um, a bit too high level, yeah. and actually, you know, it's like, um, can you solve world peace? Uh, <laughs> okay, I'm not quite sure how to do that with data analytics yet, but I'll, <laughs> I'll come. I'll come back to you, etc. So, um, and and some of the, all of my role and some of you know my some of my you know, senior team leads would actually be trying trying to translate that question into. Okay, what do I actually need to go and do from a data analytics point of view to support that? What data do I need to go source? What analytics do I need to do? What models do I need to build Um, when the statement or question or challenge is is so high level, for example?
0: Mm, Yeah. Yeah, no, that's um, yeah, interesting how that all ties together, really, because I guess as the literacy piece grows, that's something that users will start to become more aware of, right, that they the questioning that they're asking, you know, they're more likely to get the response that they're looking for if they ask the questions in a certain way, or it's a, you know, to a certain level of detail, for example, which.
1: I yeah. mean, I'll give you a good example. I, I quite often, when, when I ask other people for information, the first thing I start with is um, this is what I'm trying to understand. I'm trying to understand the trend of so-and-so. I'm trying to look at this for that, for him, but for this date, and this is what I think I need, or do you have a better do you have a, a better solution, for example, rather than launch into hey, Mr. Marketeer, can you tell me what the the brand research recall stats were for last year? And they just go, here they are. Oh, hang on, have you got them? And quite often what happens is, and you see it a lot in responses from data analytics people, is they'll say, You asked for X, I've given you X. Oh, and by the way, um, I don't know, they'll so they'll tell you some some little thing, and the, and the recipient will go. Oh, could I have that as well? Yeah, here you go. And I don't suppose you've got it for five years, have you? Yeah, here you go, five years. Do you know what I mean? And that's when it iterates. You go, why didn't you just ask me for all that in the beginning? And it's like, well, because you didn't ask the question, did you? You didn't go back and say, what is it? You know, no offence, you've asked me for this. It's quite clear, but can I just check what you want it for? What are you going to do with it? Am I going to give you the right information? Some people get annoyed, though. And I don't know if you've heard people talk about the five whys of questioning. So they say you should ask um, uh, why. So when someone asks you, can I have this? You go, why? Uh, Why? I I reckon you get to three whys and you probably get your lights punched out, frankly. But um, (laughs) I try to get to three whys. Um, Sometimes I I drop out and give up at two whys. But um, there are some people who go away to the five whys. And if you haven't justified why you want it, uh, you know, in teams that have got lots and lots of, you know, backlog of requests, they just won't do it.
0: Yeah yeah no and and that, and that makes that makes sense. Um so moving on to something that you you started to 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 kind of touch on earlier around the importance of having the right people and completely agree with what you're saying, you know, I think in this day and age a lot of organizations go out and recruit and it's a case of, you know, a, a list of we need these five things. These are our five requirements. Um and five? Often, well, yeah, yeah, you know what I mean. Though. Yeah, well, five. You know, in in the in the in the key requirements, five technologies, and there's ten more in the desirable. But um, but yeah, and, and I think I'm an advocate of often saying that, you know, the. the the real skill in all of this, irrespective of what technology they've used, is, you know, the ability to be able to engage the users, engage the stakeholders, that communication, presentation, storytelling, translation piece, you know, that that, that influencing skill, I guess, which is very difficult to find on a CV, right, because no one puts that down on a CV, typically. Um, and the whole diversity piece, in my eyes, is, is not too dissimilar, you know, it's a hugely important topic, and I think one that is starting to get more and more airtime, and and rightly so. Um, however, I'm just keen to kind of understand how you go about building these diverse teams because I guess Graham, it's something that you're obviously quite proud of because I think you know what what I see in the market is it's great that organisations are out there trying to take action against this. They've recognised that there might be a problem, especially at the leadership level, right? But um, it's almost become its own side strategy you know it's like we, okay we're going to go and use a headhunter because we want to find x type of person because that's what we're missing you know for in our repertoire of types of people if that makes sense so what's the what does that effective recruitment process look like in terms of diversity and the policies around that and in terms of making sure you have that diverse team and obviously the benefits associated
1: i think it's an interesting point i think um I, in my experience, I think it, it changed for me. Um, certainly, um, um, I think in, in my time at the AA, probably 2007, um, we expanded the team, um, you know, pretty much overnight, and went out to market and recruited people. And because we had so many vacancies, we we could sort of pick and choose a bit. And it was a bit like I call it a jigsaw puzzle. So actually, we could go out and say, look, we've got six analytical roles. Um, between you know one year and five years experience, um, you know hopefully you've used some of the languages. Don't care if you haven't, and so it was it was a lot easier in that situation to go out and um, pick people who um, had roughly you know we might call it three out of the five things or four out of the five things that you wanted, um, and so some of those would be technical, and some of those things would be you know their ability to present or to um, you know, to, to explain you know complex ideas, for example. And that so that worked for us. I think the challenge comes maybe when you're um, you talked about your example there, where maybe you're bringing in one person and you've got this idea of what that one person is going to look like, and actually you go out to market and you can't find the person that looks like that. Um, And actually, is that the right thing to do to the existing team? Are you bringing someone in that doesn't fit in the jigsaw? Because ultimately, the 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 team still has to has to work. Um, You know, the other example I I talk about is. You know, Manchester City went out and spent billions on transfers and on um, players' wages, and actually didn't win anything for a couple of years because they bought a load of stars who were a load of individuals who couldn't operate as a team. I mean, I'm sure there's lots of other reasons, and as you come from Manchester, I'm sure you know otherwise. <laughs> but yeah, you
0: know. yeah, go on. But, you know, turning the screw on City, I'm like as a this. as a devout
1: <laughs> Liverpool supporter, I just you know I could sit there and laugh, but obviously it came good for them because actually all that money eventually they operated as as a team. And so I think um, what you're trying to do is fit people into your team. The, the hard thing then is, do you end up with um, robots, everyone looking the same? And so part of that is your recruitment policy and strategy and, and the way you, you exercise it. So um, for us, you know, predominantly, I've, I've had sort of limited talent team support. So I'm going to say a lot of it's down to me and my team. And you know, so it's not just me, but you know, my team leads as well. And because we we ended up, um, I say ended up, but we we started to build a diverse team, you know, particularly say gender diverse, that actually that becomes a self-fulfilling because when you turn up to the interview and they're being interviewed by, um, you know, a male and a female and you present the structure, you show the, somebody the structure chart that's got, you know, 50-50 male and female names on a data analytics team, they go, blimey, not, um, you know, when I joined Addison Lee, there were no females in the team. Actually, there was one. She was on maternity leave and everyone had forgotten about the fact that she was on maternity leave. I mean, no offence, but how does a team not know or forget that they had someone on maternity leave? So, um, you know, and, and over time as we, um, Addison Lee, actually we got to, we weren't quite 50-50, but we were just under 50-50 in terms of a, a male-female split. How did that happen? You know, when you're out recruiting, it isn't just – can you code in Python? Or oh, and 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 and. It was actually in the interview process. Great, they can they can do some of those things, but can they also um, present? And can they talk? Can they plan? And some of the other skills that we needed those people to 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 um, to produce, I suppose. Yeah. And yeah. and that is a more balanced um, recruitment. And I think you know if you if if talent teams you know if you if you don't know you go to any good talent resourcer or recruiter or just google it you can find lots of information on this subject about you know um, writing a better balanced um, um, job description that isn't i'm sorry but naturally um, skewed towards you're going to get males or a certain type of person apply for example mm-hmm. even if yeah. you don't realize you're doing it actually you are doing it because of the work of what you've said like you've said it you must be nine to five and you must be in the office and 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 all those certain things and a list of technical skills, as long as your arm, that will end up driving a certain type of person and you won't end up with a a diverse um, Mm. team.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's such an important point. And I think that's then what's driving this kind of diversity and extracurricular diversity initiative, right? And I've heard some horror stories around people getting to the end of a process, for example, and them kind of saying, well, you know, we really like you we'd love to hire but the slight stumbling block is that you know you're a you're a white middle-aged man (laughs) and people are like uh well i can't change that you know so and it's kind of like now we're kind of having to retrospectively try and fix these environments that we've created (laughs) and and, it's, it's not a it's no no one's fault per se is it but it's just having you know it's just having the the foresight to be thinking about this stuff as you're p- piecing that team together, not just from a, you know, do they have some of the, you know, softer skills in quotation marks as well as the technical skills, but you know, are they, are you getting diverse, diversity from, from, from every aspect, I guess. Um, I suppose
1: You also have to think about it as, what is it, what is it like for them coming into the team? Um, because, you know, if they feel like, well, you know, most of the team are, 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 are like a certain type of person, whether it's, um, you know, white male or a certain age or something, you know, because you can equally be age. And actually, it's quite intimidating. And if you want to talk about intimidating, you know, um, I'm um, um, involved with uh, WID, you know, the Women in Data movement um, with Roisin and Pale, And, Payal, and um, they invited me along to their WID event, which was the the, the one just before the pandemic hit, a um, thousand plus women in the intercontinental hotel um, and there was about three blokes that got invited to attend (laughs) and a fantastic array of speakers that's intimidating but actually start to think about what it's like for them coming into you know often very male dominated um data analytics teams you know Mm -hmm. it's, it's it's the same sort of feeling
0: yeah yeah yeah. Interesting. So I guess trying to wrap this up because I'm conscious of, of time, Graham, but, um, you know, we could probably go on for, for hours. So last point, and I know something that you've touched upon previously, especially when we were speaking about putting this thing together offline was around methodology and a lot of debate in the industry, I guess, around, you know, the whole agile methodology piece and, you know, is it fit for purpose as far as data analytics goes you know can it be used in the same way it's used in the the tech you know it world for example what's what's your take on that
1: i'd say um probably until recently you know i was probably a, a more devout traditional prince waterfall um method for data analytics you know like everything's specified up front we know what we got to build we know how big it's got to be um but actually um Perhaps because I've been exposed to um, hybrid, you know, water agile, you know, whatever you want to call them, and um, not proper full-scale agile. Um, and I, although cover will probably um, the purists in there will say we're not we're not full-scale yet, they're pretty damn close. And so there are you know sprint teams and the scrums, and you know I go to um, one of the stand-ups each day. Um, other people, my data team go to others. So there's there's about five or six um, scrums that are delivering different bits. There's data and MI and stuff involved in each one. So one of us goes to each, each stand up, one of us is involved. Okay, it might be that actually I'm, for, for one of the sprints, I'm working on a thing that's in, a, in another team, for example. So actually, um, I don't necessarily need to be there or we swap around. The point is there's somebody there from data, there's somebody there from marketing, somebody there from finance, um, and actually, and maybe it's because it's a, a smaller company; it works, and so I suppose I've become a bit of a convert. Um, that it's not um, in the past you to say it's just an excuse not to write proper requirements. You just <laughs> you know, we'll just keep iterating until we get it right. And um, that sounds great when you're the customer and the stakeholder who just likes to iterate it, not the person who's got to build it. Or worse, you know, when it's certain like data products, where often you build something, and by the time it's iterated five or six times. It's a Frankenstein. You know, when people talk about data products, you know, over years, you know, data warehouses and data platforms becoming Frankensteins. Actually, smaller data products can become a Frankenstein pretty damn quick if you build it to be, well, I thought it was going to be this big. Oh, hang on, hang on. Oh, it's just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And I don't know, the, the platform it's on or the um isn't big enough or the tool you chose wasn't quite right because you didn't you didn't realize no one told you how it was gonna how it was gonna grow, for example.
0: Mm, Yeah. Excellent. So as we wrap this up then, so how hands-on should a data leader be? So last question, obviously, you're, I guess, one of a small group that um, is, you know, comes from that kind of technical data analytics background, still very much likes to be involved, is in an environment where you can do that as well as the bigger strategic piece as someone in that environment, how much of your time is split out of interest between being hands-on technically and doing the strategic transformational hearts and minds literacy piece?
1: I think it's, um, it's changing, you know, just, I am mean, only, what am I, uh, seven months in, um, I would say, um, in the beginning, actually I was doing the, you know, I was writing the data strategy, you know, one day and the next day I might've been running the reporting because the reporting lady was on holiday. Um, but you know, I was it was it was a bit of a split. Nowadays, I you know, I'd probably say this morning I was um, trying to work out what I'm going to write for my board paper this week. That I've got to submit um, by Friday. Um, you know, a bit of team management, and then I probably spent the other half of my time um, where again, this was this was not a requested piece of work, but I was just um, looking at Apple mobility data and overlaying it with our sales data to see whether I can predict where I think we're going to trade the next couple of months. Um, because of the pandemic why is that important or because when you're PE owned and various things going on you want to try and have a good idea and and try and forecast Um, and you know I just happened I had thought about this data and I thought oh I wonder if I can do it said, it's not a a request it's a sort of proactive piece of piece of work so I suppose my my thing would say at the moment it's 50-50 but of the 50 where it's hands-on probably 50 percent of that is proactive stuff. So, you know, no one's come to me ask me to do that stuff with data. I've got this general, you know, um, I was recruited with, you know, five objectives. This is what we want you to come in and do. Um, it doesn't say do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, etc You've got to work out that says what sort of things can you do to improve our, you know, um value of using data, for example, or monetization of data, right? Go and find some things and go and do it. Yeah.
0: Because ultimately I
1: don't work for someone who's a data technician, data technical person.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So I guess to surmise then, you know, how hands-on should a data leader be? We're effectively saying that's really dependent upon the environment that they find themselves in. Right.
1: Yeah. That, and it's fair? what they want to be, isn't it? Yes. Size yeah. company and where where do they want to be? And for me at the moment, I quite like this. It suits me.
0: Good. Oh, well, Graham, thank you very much. I really appreciate you giving us your time and, you know, parting with your wisdom on us. Um, if anyone wants to get in touch with you, reach out to you, kind of pit your brains about anything that we've talked about today, what's the best way for them to, to do that?
1: Uh, obviously on, you know, just about every social media um, platform. <laughs> I say just that, but probably not some of the the, the brand new like um you know clubhouse or something. And, yeah. Uh, but yeah, LinkedIn's always good. And I like nothing better than a you know personalized LinkedIn message. Uh you know, why do you want to, you know, why do you want to sort of connect um and you with know, Ability to to actually see some things not just um try and sell me something
0: <laughs> awesome cool well graham look thank you very much really appreciate you coming on um yeah had a had a great chat and um yeah look forward to speaking to you again soon thank you
1: very much good right, to catch right.
0: up that's it for this episode of driven by data the podcast i hope you enjoyed it i'll be back next week speaking with another thought leader from the world of data and analytics until then Please follow our group on social media if you've not already done so, where you'll be able to subscribe and therefore be made aware of the podcasts as they arrive. And please share, like and leave reviews so that more people from our industry get to hear and benefit from these two. If you've got any questions or you want to suggest ideas for topics or potential guests, then please feel free to reach out to me. Thanks for listening and I'll be back next week.